unique podcast taking you behind the badge. Unbelievable stories exploring the day in the life of a first responder. 911 is made possible by Carlos Bail Bonding and Eric Buchanan and Associates, fighting for those who have been denied disability, life, long-term care, and health benefits nationwide. Now, here's your host, DeMarlin Dean. Welcome to 911. And of course, we have another great show in store for you today. Today, my guest is retired Sergeant Fred Reynolds, and he started with the Compton Police Department and then transitioned to the L.A. County Sheriff's Department when they came in and took over Compton. We'll talk a little bit about that. But altogether, this dude has about 32 years on the job. He worked as a patrol, a field training officer. He worked in a robbery, homicide. He was a patrol supervisor, even even a homicide uh, supervisor. And he also worked the dreaded internal affairs where everybody hates you in internal affairs. But check this out. This gentleman has over 75 commendations th- throughout his career, and most officers don't ever get one, and this dude has over 75. And if that isn't enough, he's, he's also written a very, very good book that I've read, and it's called Black, White, and Gray All Over. And we'll talk a little bit about that book and what inspired him and and talk about some of the stories in that book. So don't go away. We will come back and hear from uh, retired Sergeant Fred Reynolds of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. Listen up, friends. Do you or someone that you know have disability insurance? I mean, the insurance that you buy through your employer in case you have an injury or an illness that prevents you from doing your job. And if you do have that insurance, good for you. Hopefully you'll never have to use it. But know this, if you do have an injury or illness and it prevents you from doing your job and you file that claim, the insurance company is going to do everything they can to try to deny that claim. And if you find yourself in that position, you need to call Eric Buchanan and Associates. That's right. Eric Buchanan and Associates and put them to work for you. They will go to bat and fight to get you the benefits that you've paid for and that you deserve. You can call them at 877-634-2506. Again, that's 877-634-2506. Or you can find them online at BuchananDisability.com. That's BuchananDisability.com. Be sure and call these guys. Eric Buchanan and Associates. All right, welcome back to 911. Fred, how are you doing today, sir? I'm good, D. How are you? Man, I am so blessed. Thank you so much for joining us. First of all, let me let me get this out of the way. Your book was awesome. Thank you. It really was. It it took me, I mean, it's it's like you drew a picture. I could I could really vividly see every scene that you were describing. And when you were talking about some of the things in your childhood, I swear I thought I was watching I'm gonna get you sucker. I mean, that was <laughs> <laughs> you talking about the the pimps with the high heels with the, the glass. I was like, oh my goodness. So we'll talk about it some more at the end, but everybody make a note right now. Black, White, and Gray All Over by Mr. Uh, Fred Reynolds. Make sure you check that book out. But essentially, 
you know, it was about, you know, a smart kid that you kind of a true story, smart kid. You kind of got out uh, hung up with the wrong crowd or hung out with the wrong crowd, started getting in some trouble. And if I remember correctly, you were literally going down the street looking for your next victim and 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 something caught your attention about the recruiting officer. Is that correct? A recruiting office. That's absolutely correct. The recruiting office on uh, Grand River, um, one of the largest streets in Detroit. Detroit. Yes. Yeah. And you decided what at that point? You know, um, I, I, I had been thinking about trying to do something else with my life because I, I saw a jail or a prison cell ahead of me or death because a lot of my friends were, were um, going down those two paths. And I, for some reason, I was just walking and, and I looked up and I see this recruiting station. I said, let me check this place out. And um, I went in there and I started talking to the recruiter and you know, I said, this this is a way I can get out of here. Maybe I can get a fresh start mm-hmm. and sign up. Wow. And you went straight to the Marines, too, right? Yeah. Went to the Marines. Yeah. You, you didn't take the easy way out. Hey. <laughs> if you're going to do it, do it right. Hey, right. And so that took you to California where, um, you know, you were out there for a while. You got out of the Marines. You started a life. But you also talk about how you saw some similar things in California that you were kind of trying to get away from in Detroit. As it relates to policing, you saw some of the the very same attitudes and things like that out there. Is that not right? That that is absolutely correct. It's you know, it was a time when policing was was pretty much the same uh, throughout the country in certain areas. Uh, and I'm, I'm referring to the inner cities, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a police officer in New York, uh, treated people the same as, as cops in, in Los Angeles did mm-hmm. uh, in particular communities. So that right there wasn't really an, 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 an eye opener. It was just confirmation of, of what I already knew. Um, but you know, I mean, we, we were accustomed to it. We, we were used to dealing with it. Um, we knew how to deal with it. It was just, it was just a fact of life. It was just some things that, that we had to understand and we had to, to make our way through life, through life, you know, learning how to deal with it. Absolutely. So how did you go from that experience from being on, you know, kind of the bad side or the wrong side, if you will, of the law and seeing how you, you know, you perceived or felt like you're being treated by police to actually becoming a police officer because you were not very fond of police. Oh man. I hated the cops. I hated Mm -hmm. them. I had, um, difficult experiences with the cops while I was growing up in Detroit. And, 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 you know, I brought some of that on myself because I was doing things that I shouldn't have been doing. Sure. Uh, but it, it, it nevertheless, I, I still had no no fondness for law enforcement, and I never dreamed that I would one day become a cop. But what happened was, after I got out, out of the Marine Corps, I was homeless for a bit and jobless for a bit, and I ran out of money. And Greyhound, the Greyhound bus company, they went on strike. And when when a huge corporation like that is on strike, it's easy to get a job. You just have to cross the picket line. And I, mm-hmm. I did. I became a scab, even though my father, you know, was a stout union man, a member of the UAW for his whole life. He worked at Ford Motor Company. I knew the strength of unions and how bad it was to cross a picket line to become a scab. I had to do it because I had I had a wife and I had a new new baby. So, right. you know, I had to I had to swallow that bitter pill. And I crossed that pig line and I became a scab. So one day while I'm working, I was a janitor 
you know, I clean the sidewalks outside. I clean toilets, mop the floors. And I also, on occasion, I would unload the buses. Well, the, on this one particular occasion, this uh, this Hispanic lady, she had she had some kids with her, small kids. And they they had just got off the bus. I believe they were probably coming from, from Mexico or close to Mexico and coming up here to make a new life. And a guy came up the ramp and, and grabbed the lady's suitcase and took off running and she started screaming and I just reacted you know Mm -hmm. I just chased the guy caught him and you know I got this woman's suitcase back and you know they were hugging and and crying and it it seemed like everything that they had in the world was probably in that suitcase Mm -hmm. you know and and I felt so good you know doing this act of kindness for these people that I didn't even know you know, I, I had an epiphany. It was kind of like, well, well, damn, maybe I was on the wrong side, you know, all along. Taking things from people who needed them more than me just because mm-hmm. I could. Here I was I, in, a, in a reversal of roles. I was able to take something back and give it to the people that needed it more than the person that robbed them. And it made me feel really, really good. And I felt, well, you know, maybe I can. Uh, maybe I can be a cop. Uh, it was as simple as that. Wow. And this is coming from the person that hated police. And and during this time when you really needed work, you tried, I think you said every to get every city job, but a police officer. Yeah. And now you went in and did the work of a police officer. And, and like, wow, that that actually felt pretty good. I mean, yeah, that was a seminal uh, event in my life. Uh, I it's, it's funny. I got a, a hundred dollar reward from. <laughs> <laughs> from the head of the the terminal, right? Oh and he wow! Gave me a little certificate, which I still have to this nice. day. The certificate, nice. um, and, you know, it was just it was just a real feel good story that that one incident changed my entire outlook on the way I deal with people and the way I felt about you know criminals and, and you know people that need people to stand up for them. You know, because when it comes down to it, that's what police officers are supposed to be at our core. We're supposed to stand up for people that can't stand up for themselves. Right. We're supposed to stand against the bullies. And at that moment, I realized that it was something that I could do. I, I realized that this is much better. This is a much better path than the one that I was on. Man, and that is such a pivotal moment because this comes from the guy who was who was actually sleeping as a security guard while the story you were guarding was getting robbed. So, hey, this is a huge change for you. <laughs> yeah, <it is. laughs> but, but you all have to buy the book to read that story to get the rest of that. So, before we jump into some of your uh, some of the some of the stories here, uh, you like I said, over seventy five commendations. Which which of those was the most special to you? The most special one that I got was a handwritten commendation from the mother of a woman who, I mean, it wasn't a formal commendation. It's what we call a citizen commendation and Mm -hmm. and written from this woman whose daughter had been nearly beaten to death by her boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And we ended up catching this individual and we ended up, you know, getting help for her daughter, which probably saved her life. And this woman couldn't have been more appreciative and, and she wrote a letter to the chief of police with my name. And it was it was a two page letter, you know, and, and there were a lot of grammatical errors and, and, and spelling misspelled words. But I didn't care because that made me feel 
better than every other form of accommodation that I have that I have ever gotten in my life because I know that it was heartfelt. I know that's why woman meant that. I know that this woman was truly appreciative of the help that we provided to her and her daughter. And, and it makes me feel good. And I actually still have that letter as well. That is awesome. And as you said, that's what it's all about. It's all about the people. And it just hit me as as we're talking. This is totally unrelated. You reminded me of a friend of mine whose name is Freddie, by the way. So, Freddie, I hope you're listening. And I'm like, why do you remind me so much of him? It's because he's from Detroit and you guys have a similar cadence and how you're speaking is very similar. Even though he's been here for many years, you've been out of Detroit for many years. That's the connection. Like there's something familiar about you. So, um, well, Let's get into some of the stories, because I've always said that a lot of the best cops, you have to have a little bit of criminal in you. I mean, the best cops really are on the edge and you kind of proved to be that not that you're a bad guy, but you had to you have to experience stuff on the other side. And when you experience stuff on the other side, it helps you to know what to look for when you're on the on the right side, so to speak. So we'll start with some of the lighter stuff and talk about the funniest calls, some of the funniest calls that you had. And uh, one of the ones you mentioned had to do with, um, you know, some couples and some handcuffs. So tell us about that. Um, in, in Compton, there's a, 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 a little enclave. It's right off of Atlantic and Sportsman's Drive. And, you know, we used to go there to sleep when it was quiet and it was early in the morning, like two, three, four in the morning. You know, nothing going on. A lot of times the cops would go over there to sleep or a lot of times they would go over there to, to eat, Right. A lot of times they would go over there for other things. <laughs> so on this one particular occasion, I got a uh, a call uh, on my radio from a unit and the unit wanted me to uh, 1087, which was our radio call, call for code for meet the officer. So this this particular officer wanted me to, to meet him uh, at Sportsman's. And when I got there, uh, he and his partner, they were in the back seat of the patrol car. They had locked in the back seat and, and you know, if you're in the back seat of a patrol car you can't open the door right it can only be you know from someone standing on the outside so i guess they went back there to um the relationship so to speak and <laughs> and accidentally let the door uh close and lock on them so they needed someone to come get them and uh you know i was good i kept their secret i never told it And I, I, you know, I I will never mention their names, but if they watch this podcast, they'll know and they'll be grateful that I still have held that. You make sure to tell them to watch this podcast because a similar story may or may not have happened to me, but my kids may be listening. So we'll just leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) And then you had another one where um, I believe you said, um, a man and woman ha- were handcuffed themselves and had a little trouble finding the key. Yeah. You know, um, people, we, you know, we have different, different things that make us happy when, when it comes to sexual gratification, some people, some people <laughs> like to be, uh, you know, tied up and, you know, um, they engage in various aspects of <laughs> handcuffs are a favorite, right? And some of them are fur lined handcuffs, but some of them, are real handcuffed. And so these people, this particular couple, they had to bite the bullet because they handcuffed themselves and you know, somehow they misplaced the key. So they, um, my partner and I, we had to, we had to respond, uh, just to give them a handcuff key to, to 
So cops, you know, we just don't respond to, you know, cause of cats is stuck in trees. We also <laughs> cause of uh, amorous couples uh, that are handcuffed with no key. So. Oh, so, so I'll say a um, similar story may have happened to me, but my kids may be listening. So I will not talk about it. <laughs> oh, that is funny. That's funny. And then and the um, another one, another story that you share. It kind of is kind of in line with some of one of the stories or not a story, but kind of my intro of my the podcast. I say something about, you know, uh, simulate a call, someone calling the police because their neighbor stole their drugs. And, you know, you get crazy calls like that. You have a call where a woman was uh, not too pleased with her boyfriend because of uh, him. Being oh, yeah. Crazy. He uh, he smoked up all the crack um, smoked up the crack, <laughs> and, you know, so upset. She called the police and she wanted to arrest it. I had to explain to her that um, that w- that wouldn't be possible, and yeah, she she wasn't too uh, too happy about that. But yeah, for the, uh, for- that that is crazy. That is crazy. Yeah, people just I don't know. They just I don't know what it gets in their head. They just don't <laughs> think. And um, for, so we'll go from some of the funny calls to just dumb criminals and even some of the dumb criminals are really kind of sad um as an officer you rarely roll up on things such as armed robberies in progress and things like that it's rare you watch tv you, they make it sound like it happens all the time but you actually witnessed someone shooting you know a, a woman now here you are we'll set this up you're in compton and compton frankly is like a war zone at least during the time you were there you probably saw more murder and bodies and really someone in the military, in the Marines, in war. It's bad. But you actually witnessed uh, a man shooting a woman. But tell us about that and how you caught up with him. Yeah, one night, uh, my partner and I, we, I was the pe- the passenger, which we call the bookman, because the bookman is, is responsible for writing the paper and doing the reports and booking prisoners. So we call him the bookman. So on this particular night, I was the bookman. And my partner, and I, we were just driving down the street. It was about, you know, Two thirty, three o'clock in the morning. We hours of the of the early morning, and you know, I look to my right and I see, uh, I hear a gunshot, and I see a man shooting a woman. Uh, she falls to the ground. The car takes off. I tell my partner we go in pursuit. I get on the radio. I tell the dispatcher, you know, to roll uh, uh, paramedics to the location where the woman is to provide uh, medical attention to her while we continue in pursuit of this, uh, of this individual. It was a short pursuit and he ended up going down an alley and, and he jumps out of the car while the car is still moving and rolls over a couple of times, <laughs> gets up and he's running. <laughs> and, and I mean, I was, I was in really good shape uh, during this time of my career it was early on, probably in 87, 88, and I'm chasing this guy down the alley, and, and the, he's he has a gun in his hand, throws mm-hmm. it right as I catch him, and tackle him to the ground. And the gun, the gun hits uh, the facade of a upper upper facade, second story facade of a of a, and it bounces and falls right in front of him, uh, <laughs> as I'm handcuffing him. Yeah, kind of hard to deny that that's your gun there. Yeah, that was that was all wrapped up with a bow for me. Rare. Wow. And and you actually um, 
one one of the stories that you tell under that category is actually on yourself. Now you're not a dumb criminal at this point, but it certainly was one of your most embarrassing moments uh, in a at a at a um, call you had at a mausoleum. <laughs> <laughs> I was no, I was with my second training officer, field training officer at the time. Uh, his name was uh, Jack McConnell. Rest in peace. We called him Fat Jack, and. Uh, <laughs> We got a, a call of a, a of a four five nine silent. Now four five nine is the California Penal Code for burglary, right? Mm-hmm. So it was a silent alarm. So it, it was at a, a mausoleum called Angeles Abbey in Compton, and this this place is spooky at night, right? And this was like three o'clock in the morning, and I had never been to this particular location on for any kind of call, much less a four five nine silent. So when we get there, my, my partner, uh, my FTO, rather, Fat Jack, he tells me, he says, I'm going to check outside. I want you to go inside and check the mausoleum, right? And, you know, there's a myth about black people not liking horror movies, right? <laughs> and I don't know if it's, it really is a myth, because at least when it comes to me, it's true, right? <laughs> I didn't want to go in that mausoleum, right? But, you know, I'm a cop now. I got a badge, got a gun, flashlight. I go in there. So I'm checking this mausoleum, looking for for crooks, bad guys, whatever. And I hear a noise above me. And I just instinctively point my gun and I fire off around. (laughs) (laughs) And and it was like a cannon in the dead of the night in the mausoleum. And all of a sudden, dozens and dozens of bats start flying over my head out of the mausoleum. And I'm covering my head. And I am now I'm really scared as shit because I'm in the (laughs) and I got bats flying over my head. And my my, my FTO, he comes running back in, comes running into the mausoleum, you know, because he's thinking, what the hell? You know, did he do something? Mm -hmm. Somebody shoot him? He doesn't know what to think. And he gets there and he sees me and he sees a dead bat lying. (laughs) <laughs> on the ground and and he, he started, and, uh, he, you know, he, he tells me, don't worry about it. We're not going to tell anybody because I, I would never live it down. And he kept that with him. And, you know, he wasn't concerned about the bat because we had these these roving packs of, of dogs that um, roved, roved the streets of Compton all night. And, you know, he said, well, one of the one of the crack, we call them crack pats packs mm-hmm. roam the streets like crackheads and he says one of these crack packs uh will get that bat don't worry about it no. <laughs> yeah that was uh, uh, that that one stuck with me definitely wow so uh in your book we'll shift gears a little bit here and talk a little about your book uh again the name of the book is black white and gray all over and it's kind of ironic um if you go, people go back and listen to episode 23 with my guest, Way Wes Blaylock. He worked for the San Jose um, State Police Department. And I asked him what was the biggest misconception that he found uh, when he or, or, or the biggest surprise that he found when he started doing police work. And he said that things are not black and white. There's a lot of gray area and tell some stories very similar to yours about how you have to make judgment calls of, yes, I can arrest this person. But is that the best thing for them? Right. And um, I think a lot of that is is instrumental in, you know, it's what separates good officers from great officers is using that discernment uh, on the street. So so tell me about the book and what made you want to write the book. And then we're going to get into some of the heartbreaking things that people may find in the book and in your life in general. You know, my life, it was, um, you know, it, it was literally filled with black, white 
um, black and white, and and there, and there was the gray area that I often found myself in. You know, because most of the time when you when you when you think black and white, you think good and you know uh, yin and yang, right? And then there's that area in the middle where you know I often found myself in, not only in my professional life but in my personal life as well. And that's where I wanted to be because I wanted to be able to make judgment calls based on my experience, you know, dealing with people. Because once you're a cop, you're wearing that badge, you got that gun, you you have a tremendous amount of power over the people that you come across in the street. You have the power to change their lives. And you, like you said, you know, you, you have to use a certain amount of discernment to make sure that you're making you know, not only the, the the black and white decision, the law and order decision, but the best decision for the individual that you're dealing with. Because, right. You know, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll shift gears to, to the crack laws of the 80s and the 90s, right? They were draconian in nature. Uh, they, you know, and, and they punished people in the inner cities more so than they punished anybody else because that's where you found crack in the inner cities, Right. White people would come to the inner cities to buy crack because they couldn't find it in their neighborhoods. All they could find was powder, powder, cocaine. Mm -hmm. The punishment for powder cocaine was a lot less than it was for the punishment for crack. Always, always confounded me because it's the same damn drug. Right. So when you put put these strict draconian laws on people that are, are smoking and selling crack cocaine, it's it's primarily affecting people of color. Right. And a lot of times these people that smoked crack, you know, they weren't actual criminals. They were sick. They had a disease. It's the same as if, you know, these people that are, you know, getting hooked on pain meds. Now, these suburban housewives getting hooked on pain meds. Now, imagine taking one of those women away from their families and putting them in prison for three years because she got caught with a bottle of pain meds. Right. It's the right thing is taking a, a, a man or a woman out of the home in the inner city because they got a $20 piece of crack and you arrest them and you send them to prison for three years. Now you have children that don't have any guidance in those homes and they end up belonging to the streets. Right. Right. You, 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 you were able and, and, and doing, you know, that kind of police work, the letter of the law, police work. Oh, I caught this, this person. He got a $20 piece of crack. I got to take him to jail. Um, you, you ended up hurting entire families. So a lot of times what I would do, I would step on the crack and, and, and tell the person to go home, right? Go home, right, man. Um, you know, I'm giving you a break, you know, make a, take advantage of it. Now, if two days from then he went out and got another piece of crack and got caught and arrested by another cop, that wasn't on me. Right. Right fact that I tried to do the right thing for that individual when I had an opportunity to. Uh, And that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to be the best that I that I could for the people that I was charged with policing because we all need chances. D, you know, Mm -hmm. I I, I got a lot of breaks in my life. And, you know, without some of the breaks that I got, I I probably would have ended up in prison. And I tried to remember that when I dealt with people that we all need breaks. But at the same time, I knew that there were like dangerous people on the streets that had to be dealt with. And when we came across dangerous people, I had to deal with them firmly and decisively. That's right. True law enforcement or peace officer is. And that's the way I tried to to do my job. Right. I like to call that policing with compassion, you know? Yeah. 
That's a good time. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you, you have to do the job. You have to enforce the laws, but not everything is, you is the maximum penalty. You, you do take into account the situation around you. And that, you know, the crack epidemic, that's one of those things where when people say, you know, uh, not to get political, but when they say there's not implicit bias or there's not racism, there's not all those things, even the people that, that, enforce those laws or put those things into place will tell you looking back, you know, that was bad. That, that was not good. Absolutely. Um, yeah. There's no way you can have someone with an ounce of cocaine um, getting less sentence than someone with a crack rock. And that was happening all the time. That was happening all the time. You're absolutely correct. Yeah. So um, you talk about some, first of all, let me, let me, let me ask you, did you get a lot of pushback? Because I was very surprised when I read your book that you were using these real officers names. And then even at the end, you had them all listed and not all of them had very flattering pictures uh, painted about them. Did you get any pushback when this book came out when some of your partners read it? You know, D, I've, I've gotten some pushback, but what, what I tried to do, what I wanted to do is I wanted to leave a lasting legacy of the Compton Police Department. Right. Because that was a storied police department. It was well, had been in existence for one, well over 100 years. And, you know, the, in Compton, there, well, in the city next to Compton is, is called Linwood. Right. And there used to be a police department for that city, the Linwood Police Department. And the sheriff's department took over that police department um, years ago. But there's no record of the Linwood Police Department. No one knows the officers that works there. I, I've never read a book uh, written by any Linwood police officer. So there's no legacy for that police department. Right. I didn't want that for the Compton Police Department. You know, even though the police department is gone, you know, I want pe I wanted people to in the future be able to pick up some kind of, you know, book or literature or something that they could read and 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 kind of identify with some of the people that work there and get to know what that city was like. And that's why I listed uh, everyone that I worked with in the back of that book, because I, that was my way of paying homage to them for, mm -hmm. for you know, for being employees of that department at the time that I was there. It, it was my tribute to them. And in order for me to accurately depict uh, the city and the people that work there, yeah, I, I had to be honest. I had to be true. Right. You know, I had one guy, he, he calls and, and he, he, he says, Hey man, why'd you call me fat in the book? And, and you know, it's like, well, dude, you, you, you were fat, you know? Um, Huh, now, yeah, I mean, it, I can't call you a skinny guy if you're not if you're not skinny. I, I had to call it like it was. And, you know, I talk about I talk about corruption and, you know, I talk about the political corruption. I talk about corruption from from certain officers and the things that I, that I talk about in the book. It, it's not like I'm exposing uh, any secrets because the one investigation, the big narcotic investigation was actually published in a newspaper. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's out there. So I'm, I'm going to talk about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I felt the need to explain exactly what happened. I felt the need to explain the circumstances that led up to the sheriff's department coming into Compton and taking over policing of a police department that had been in existence for over 100 years. Um, so, yeah, some feathers were ruffled, but I also, you know, I, I was true to myself because if there were officers that I felt were outstanding, I talked about them as well. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no perfect police department. Every police department has characters, right? Right. 
the the reason why I was able to, you know, be good with what I wrote about everything in the book and everyone is because I was harder on myself than anyone else in that book. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I talk about my, my failings as a man, uh, mm-hmm. as a father, as a son, and, and as a police officer. Right. So if if I can document mine, I certainly can document the people, you know, the things that I saw around them, because this this is this is a a book that's based on fact. Right. Yeah, it was certainly a journey. I mean, you did. You documented what so many officers go through. You lost you lost a you had a failed marriage. You drank too much, um, gambled. I don't know if you gambled too much because you had some good nights. You had some bad nights. So I don't know if that was an issue, but you did. You you were very, very uh, open and putting things in there. That I'm like, wow, I can't believe he shared that. So um, so kudos to you, because it really was a, a journey um, and you could feel all of the things that you were feeling, such as how you felt when you had to see or deal with this, the murder of the 10 month old um, Kylie. I believe was the name. Kylie Rich- um, can you, Pringle, yeah. Could you take us through that and tell us about that? Yeah, you know, you know, D, that was um wow, that one, that one, that one stuck with me, with me, man. It was it was during the time the sheriff's department was hot and heavy um in regard to taking over the police department. So we were dealing with that. We were dealing with the, you know, uh the uncertainty because we knew that, hey, the sheriff's department coming, they may, they don't have to take everyone from Compton. They could say, well, we don't want this guy. We want this guy. We don't want to, you know, so there was that uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And I, at the time I was the supervisor of the homicide unit and where this, where this child was murdered is about a block from the station, from the police station. Mm. Heard the shots. Okay. Mm. I was in the station when it happened. We heard the shots. And when I get to the scene, there's a stroller and it's just saturated with blood. And there's there's a baby in the stroller with, with this missing half of her face. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened was she, her aunt was pushing her in a stroller just at the time that some gang members uh, came down the streets, street and fired at rival gang members standing in the driveway. And this poor poor baby was was an unintended victim of mm. you know random violence, and um, I you know I didn't cry much while I was while I was a cop despite the things that I saw, um, the the absolutely horrible things that I saw on a day in and day day out basis because you know how cops are we internalize things, mm-hmm. you know we 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 can't be seen as as soft right right tough guy and a tough girl all the time. So we, you know, we keep our emotions bottled up inside of us, which ultimately ends up bad for a lot of us because it leads to stress, strokes, and heart attacks, as you well know. Right. When I got home that night, um, you know, I, I cried. I went, the, I went in the shower, I cried. And it was just, it was just too much. I, I had never seen an infant uh, murdered like that. I had seen hundreds of of gunshot victims and, you know, kids killed, you know, six and seven, four years old, but an infant in a stroller, I had never seen that. And, and, you know, it, um, it, it, it bothered me. And, and, you know, I just couldn't hold it in anymore. And I, you know, I cried. And even then I couldn't cry in front of my wife because I, I didn't want to see it and want to ever let anybody see me cry. D 
ever. You know, from, wow. from the last time I cried at home before I left Detroit, I swore I would never cry in front of anyone else again. And, you know, that I was married at the time to, to my current wife, who's been a godsend. Mm-hmm. Couldn't let her see me cry, so that's why I went in the shower and turned on, turned the shower on, and, and cried. Um, but yeah, that, that that affected me, and I'll never get over that. Yeah, I was gonna ask you if, if there if you had anything of of all the things that you've seen that stayed with you. So you just answered that question. Um, but another one, if you if you're okay to talk about it, you do share it in your book. Is obviously the. Um, the murder of Officer Burrell and McDonald. Um, can you can you tell us kind of about that and what was going on there? That was a horrible, a horrible night. Um, Kevin Burrell was beloved by everyone on the department. He was like everybody's little brother, even though he was six, seven, and over three hundred pounds. <laughs> you know, I I used to go over his house and play dominoes and drink beer, but he didn't drink because if he drank one beer, he would be falling all over the place. He couldn't eat a lot, but he couldn't drink, couldn't hold his alcohol. Uh, He was such a good guy, man. And his partner that night was James McDonald. He was a white kid and um, he was from Santa Rosa. And he had come down here to to go to Long Beach State, come down to, to L.A. County to go to Long Beach State. And in the interim, he was a, a reserve police officer. And he had just gotten hired by the Santa Rosa Police Department at full time. So it was his second to last night riding. And he wanted to ride with Kevin because everybody loved riding with Kevin. And this particular night, I was um, I was in charge of. Of a, of a unit that the watch commander put together. And the watch commander is is most of the time a lieutenant that runs a shift of, of patrol officers. So mm-hmm. the watch commander put a, a team together called the Zebra Units. And he, put, he did that because there had been a lot of shootings, gang-related shootings recently in Compton. And the watch commander gave us the task of responding to all gang-related calls, right? And so I was in charge of this team. I had a trainee with me, and there were three other units involved. And James McDonald and Kevin Burrell were one of the other Zebra units. And towards the end of the shift, it had gotten quiet, and I wanted to I wanted to get off early because I was dating a new girl girlfriend. And I you know I really liked her. I did. I really, mm-hmm. So I told everybody to take it into the station. We're gonna get off a couple hours early. Um, Kevin. And James and and another zebra unit decided to go get something to eat before they came to the station. After they finished eating, a radio call came out of shots fired, and they chose to go investigate the call. And at some point, Kevin and James saw a red uh, pickup truck that they decided to pull over, and um, they did a, a traffic stop on on this vehicle and. Kevin was driving. James was the book man. And Kevin got the guy out of the car. And this is confirmed by a witness driving down the street. Kevin got the guy out of the car and he had him put his hands on the roof of the the vehicle by the driver's door. And Kevin was patting him down. And then he had him walk back to, to the patrol car, giving the impression that Kevin patted him down and didn't find any weapon. Mm-hmm. When the guy got back to the patrol car, and this is based on how we did things, operational procedures, and how I knew Kevin worked. Uh, I knew that Kevin was going to have the guy put his hands on the hood of the patrol car and have Jimmy watch him 
while Kevin went back to the car and searched it for guns and for dope, right? Mm-hmm. I think that the individual that killed them uh, thought that Kevin may have was going to find something if he searched the truck. And apparently Kevin missed the gun and the guy's waistband when he searched him, when he patted him down. And the guy took that opportunity to pull his gun um, and, you know, he killed them both. Um, mm. Killed them both. And I, you know, I was in the station. I was about to get undressed um, to go see uh, this, see this woman. And and the, the, the call came out of an officer down and, you know, I put my clothes back on. I run up the stairs, get in the car with my partner. And then another, the radio call was updated two off down. And um, at Rosecrans and Dwight, which wasn't too far from the station, it was it was less than two miles from the station. We got there rather quick, um, and when I, when we got there, Kevin was Kevin was dead in the street, uh, and 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 Jimmy was was dead in the street by the front of the patrol car, and Kevin was more off to the side in the gutter. Mm. You know, so. Uh, it, it, that that stayed with me a lot because, you know, I blame myself for it because if if I hadn't have been trying to get off early to see this woman, you know, I would have been there with them. Uh, you know, the situation would have turned out so differently. You know, I let them down. You know, I was in charge of them. You know, did my lust lead to their murders? And, you know, it was, I, I had to deal with that. And, you know, I, I started drinking a little after that. So that was probably probably the worst night in my entire 32 years. How did you I know you I know you dealt with it improperly by drinking, but and and maybe you're not over it. Are are you are you at a healthy place as far as not blaming yourself now for that? How do you process that? Yeah, I, I, I'm in a healthy place now. I, I, you know, I, I know that it, it wasn't my fault. I, I, I understand how life is. I understand that the devil always gets it. I know that. And if I wouldn't have tried to get off early, there might've been four dead cops. Um, so, you know, I, I've, I've learned how to, to deal with it. I went through a period where, where it was, where it was tough. And even now, you know, uh, in the past, uh, a cop getting shot or murdered, it was far and few between. I mean, it happened, but it didn't happen on the regular basis that it happens now, right? And every time a cop gets shot or murdered, I think back to that night, right? It wasn't that big of a problem in the past because, like I said, it didn't happen that frequently. But now, every day, a cop gets shot or murdered. So I think about that night every day. But because I'm healed, I can deal with it and I can process it better. You know, I have, I have a loving wife, you know, my wife and I adopted a, a kid. I have purpose in my life, you know, so I, I process it correctly now, um, even though it, it, it still hurts. And even though I'm going to always carry it with me, I'm always going to carry that pain with me. But one thing that went a long way uh, toward healing is the fact that I was able to get freeway memorials in their honor you know, like years after they had been murdered. And I just got I, I just got frustrated because I would drive around the cities and I would see memorials for all these other officers slain in the line of duty. And I asked myself, well, why do, why, do, why doesn't Burrell and McDonald, why don't they have 
uh, memorials in their honor. So I took it upon myself to draft a resolution um, to give freeway memorials for them and, and another officer who had been uh, killed in the line of duty during a traffic accident years before who had also not been recognized in that manner. And I drafted this resolution and I, I, I took it to, to Sacramento, which is the state capital for California. And I got a, I got the resolution passed and, and I got funds donated for the signage and, and we got them put up. Right. And um, that's awesome. It, it was like the book had been closed, you know, when when that happened and um, I, I was at peace. That is awesome. Now, were those the only three officers that have been killed in Compton's history? We had Since, when I got to, to sheriff's homicide um, a few years after the sheriff's department took over uh, Compton, I, I, I went to homicide. Um, I worked homicide at the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, which is is which is a huge feat. You know, that's probably one of the most difficult assignments to get into on the sheriff's department. Everybody wants to work sheriff's homicide. And the fact that I was able to to, to get there, to be selected there, I mean, not only coming from Compton, which was an agency that, you know, most sheriff's deputies didn't have a high opinion of, but also I was black. You know, it was was a tremendous accomplishment for me to get there, um, despite the obstacles that I had to deal with. And when I got to to the sheriff's department and I started to sheriff's homicide and I started going through all the the old Compton cases, I come I came across a couple of other uh, murders. One was a reserve officer who was off duty killed trying to break up a robbery, and another one was was a police officer who actually had a heart attack while he was fighting with some students at Compton High School. Uh, and he ends up dying as a result uh, of the heart attack. So those were all, you know, officer. One was in the line of duty. The other one was a reserve officer who put himself in the line of duty by acting as a peace officer. So, and mm -hmm. total, there's five. Well, when you think about it, I mean, when you think about all the murders in, in a relatively small city um, and all the violence, I guess I should say, in Compton, it it just seems like that's a low number. So that's really fortunate to only have had that few of a number. You know, D, it really is. And I think it was because one, the, you know, the, the way people feel toward law enforcement is different now, mm -hmm. right? There's a lot more animosity now. Two, I think the way that the Compton police officers deal, dealt with the community went a long way to toward the people in the community having a certain amount of respect for us because Compton Police Department was was unique in this way. Most of the, the officers that worked there either lived in the city, grew up in the city, or had family and relatives that still lived in the city. Mm -hmm which is atypical for a police department. It's kind of Mayberry RFD-ish in a way, um, you know, because everybody had ties to that city. So therefore they had a lot of respect for the citizens. And I think that kept the, the amount of attacks, violent attacks on the officers to a minimum. That's I think good. that was 
mutual respect. That's good. Because I also, in, in trying to grow the podcast, I also have a TikTok, which I, that's a rabbit hole getting on TikTok. So if you have a TikTok account out there, be sure to follow 9 what on TikTok. But one of the things I started doing this past fall was honoring officers that in particular that were killed in the line of duty, not just everybody that died. If it was a car accident and all that, not that it's any less important, but I, I specifically focused on officers that were killed, you know, shot intentionally ran over and things like that. And in August, I think there were 20 or something. I mean, it was something crazy. That's unbelievable. Yeah. We've already had, you know, it's, it's actually a little lower so far this year, I think so far in, in January, cause I, I'm actually behind on doing some of them. I think we had three or four that have already been killed in, uh, in January, but, but you weren't seeing this in the news. You'd see when an officer messes up. So I says, well, let me help shed some light on how many officers are giving their life, laying their life down every day to, to protect people. And I'm so glad that you did that because, like you said, there's a there's an underreporting of officers assaulted and, and killed and an overreporting um, of officers that that have to use deadly force. Absolutely. It's not. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. So we're going to shift gears a little bit more now. Now, you know, people that grew up in the in the 80s and 90s like me, you know, we like that old that old uh, that hip hop. You know, we're all down the death row and uh, you had a little collection, a little connection with death row records. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, I um after Burrell, I got to go get my charger. Sure, sure. After Burrell and, and McDonald got killed, there was a period that I really questioned whether I wanted to, you know, be a law enforcement officer for 30 years or whatever. And one of the guys that we worked with, he had a connection Um with that record company and and he had he was able to get jobs as for us as bodyguards and um he asked me if i wanted to bodyguard a dr dre right yeah so i said yeah i like dr dre yeah I, I'll, I'll do that yeah so um i ended up working for dr dre i was his bodyguard uh, a bodyguard at snoop um, a few on a few occasions and also a singer by the name of Joel. And, um, you know, I, I didn't work there that long, probably seven months, seven or eight months. But eventually I, I decided to, to stop working for them because it was just it was just too much controversy mm-hmm. involved. Um, too many bad people started hanging around. And initially what what they wanted they, they they wanted the artists to be protected, right? So they they would have the only the police officers were responsible for bodyguarding the officers, and you know essentially our job was to keep them out of trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I mean they because that's the money right there, the artists, right? Right. Um, but once all these other elements started hanging around it, it was like uh, yeah, I can't do this. Um, so I, I stopped working um, for them, and I. I started just concentrating fully on being a cop. I said, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to be the best I can at it. And that's when my career took off. So I know you, you, you spoke a lot about uh, or speak a lot about how, how cool, so to speak, or how kind, nice, whatever Dr. Dre was. I mean, you know, you didn't have any, any, any bones to pick with Dr. Dre. Of course, the record label itself, like I said, had a lot of stuff going on around it. Well, what about Snoop? He seemed like he'd be just cool to hang out with too. Snoop was great. Snoop, you know, let me tell you something. Snoop was like, um, there was never any controversy with him, no no matter how he may portray himself, you know, and that's just for 
record sales, I think. Right. But as as a person, you're right. He 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 was would be a great guy to hang out with. He was, I mean, he was he was just a cool cat. He was just a cool cat. Like smoke weed, but he was a cool cat, and I <laughs> had no problem, um, you know, bodyguarding him or Dr. Dre. They were brilliant artists, um, brilliant businessmen, and it's evident in the way their careers have taken off. Exactly. That's kind of what I think. They they were smart. I mean, they knew what they're doing, knew what their goals were and and stayed focused on the goal and, you know, knew a lot of that and even said a lot of that other stuff was just kind of kind of hype. Um, but you also and, and, and this is part of the politics with um, just the police departments. And, and, and again, you guys even you even mentioning in your book how some of the departments kind of fall a little lower of the Compton Police Department. But you said it's all but common knowledge. Uh, of who shot, um, I think, Tupac. Yeah. You know, I think that's one of the ones that's still un- unsolved. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. It, um, we we had a, a, a really bad gang and, well, they were all bad, but one was, you know, pretty well renowned and ruthless called the Southside Crip Gang. And um, they, they were in Vegas at the fight for the Mike Tyson, Bruce Seldon fight. And, you know, they were having problems with, with the mob Pyrus who were involved with the Death Row Records uh, company. And, you know, in the, in the now famous video you, of, of Tupac being involved in the fight in the casino, well, the guy that they were fighting with was like one of the most highly respected members of the Southside Crip gang. And they beat him down. And on the streets, man, respect is everything. And if you beat down the wrong person, there's going to be retaliation. Uh, there's, there's, there's no way, no, no other way I can say it. There's going to be retaliation. And this guy had to save face. And the, this gang, the Southside Crips, they have a large contingent contingency of members that live in North Las Vegas. It's almost like a home away from home for those guys. They, you know. They're down there, and Las Vegas PD knows about them and knew about them. That you know, and you know that's why there were so many of them there for the fight. Um, well, afterward, they they got the revenge, and you know uh, they shot up the car that Tupac was in. They killed Tupac. I can't, you know, obviously the the case is still open, and everything that I'm saying is is based on speculation and based on conversations that I've had with people in the streets and with people from that particular neighborhood. And even, you know, quoting one of the people who says that he was in the car at the time of the shooting has actually confessed to, to being involved in it. And that's just it. But I don't know if they're if they're ever going to be able to, to solve that case because of all the controversy around it, because of all the conspiracy theories that are related to it. You know, the FBI killed him, the CIA killed him. Try to kill Tupac because Tupac was such a galvanizing figure. You know, people don't think, don't want to believe that you know a pauper can kill a, a, a prince, right? That's yeah, that's yeah. exactly what it was. You know, it was just, it was street gang bullshit, and you know. Yeah. Now, a lot of people that watch this will probably say, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. It was a conspiracy. The CIA killed him. Or, you know, whatever. You can believe whatever you want. But I'm telling you what I know based on feet on the ground and, and being in that city and knowing people that were involved. Yeah. And there was just too many, um, you know, even the things that they did find. I, I There was another podcast. I can't remember the gentleman's name. I have to follow, uh, find out who it is because I can't. I think he's with. LAPD, 
uh, who's a homicide detective. I don't think he was with the sheriff's department and, um, you know, was was tracking it down, found the car. I think he maybe even mentioned the car um, that was allegedly used. Everything just kind of fit. But for whatever reason, you know, nothing, nothing kind of came to pass. Let me tell you, if, if, if Tupac was just another person, um, that murder would have been solved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'll just leave it at that. Well, that that plays right into my next question. And we'll start uh, wrapping it up here, because in law enforcement, it's not about what you know, but it's about what you can prove oftentimes. So you being a homicide detective or, you know, robbery or whatever else, are there cases that just just bug you because, you know, you know who did it. And either there's just that one piece of evidence that you can't find or there was that technicality that they got away. But just you, you know that this person did it. But. The, the, just the stars aren't aligning and it just pisses you off. Yeah, there's um, there's a murder of, of, of a wonderful human being. His name was Gary Beverly. He was a, a high school administrator for the Linwood Unified School District. And he was murdered, shot to death while on, on the freeway on his way home from work. And we were never able to solve that crime. Uh, although I think the pieces are there. Uh, that's one that that's one that stays with me. And yeah, I, I, I believe I have a strong belief that one day that murder will be solved. Oh yeah. Well, that's another uh, opportunity to tell people. I, I remember what you're talking about because you talk about it in your book. So if you want to, if you want to hear the whole story about that, cause it is very interesting, make sure you, you, you get the book so you can hear that uh, or get all of the, the details around that story. Um, cause yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Very interesting. So I just can't thank you enough for being here. I'd like for you to tell people uh, again, where we can find that book. Tell us, tell us whatever you'd like for us to know about that book, because I want everybody and their brother to go out and get this book and support you because it is good. When I picked it up and started reading it, it really was one of those books that I hated to put down. Well, well, man, I, you know, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by, you know, the kind words that um, that people are, are, are saying about the book. And I, I had no idea that people were going to enjoy being on my journey so much. And like I told you, uh, when I as I was writing this book, I, I realized that it was therapy for me because, uh, you know, everything that I had never said while lying on a couch talking to a psychologist, I was able to, you know, in essence, speak through my keyboard. And, you know, I, I healed, I did a lot of healing and I did a lot of uh, reflection while I was writing the book. And the fact that people enjoy what I've written and enjoy the journey, taking a journey with me, is kind of humbling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get the book on Amazon um, and you can also get it at Barnes and Noble. Oh, you're in the big store, the big box store. I hear you. So my guest today is retired Sergeant Frederick uh, Fred Reynolds with the started with the Compton Police Department, transitioned over to the L.A. Sheriff's Department. And, you know, all the stuff that you've seen, all the heartache, all the 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 uh, just the, the violence, the um, the disappointment in, in, in your uh, elected officials and all that stuff. Would you do it all over again? Absolutely. Good. Absolutely. I helped. Good. I helped so many people. You did. And you had a very, very high um, 
uh, we didn't even touch on this, but I, I seem to remember that you had a very, very high close rate with the uh, homicides and things like that. Cases that you worked, you were you were like pretty remarkable in the cases that you closed. Yeah, the one year I won, I was uh, the city of Compton's employee of the year and I, I won the California uh, Peace Officer and, and Sheriff's Award Officer of the Year. Uh, that was a good year. It was a good year. That was awesome. Well, Fred, thank you so much for joining me today. And I just want to invite all of my listeners to make sure that you like it, uh, follow it and share it with your friends. Make sure you give us a rating um, on Spotify or iTunes so that we can help get the word out and get more people um, plugged into this podcast, because I think uh, there's a lot of healing that happens with this podcast and certainly a lot of education that can help us all learn a little bit more about each other. And Fred, again, I can't thank you enough for joining me today, sir. Thanks, D. My, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to 9 what We hope you enjoy the show. If you have comments or suggestions, please email us at 911.podcast at gmail.com. And thanks to Carlos Bailbonding and Eric Buchanan and Associates for making this episode possible. 